So it's funny that you call your podcast audience napcasters. And it's it's funny because I'm actually um, doing this interview in my pajamas right now. Because... <laughs> All right, let's not get people visuals right now. <laughs> I mean, realistically, who is um, really putting their uh, Sunday best or their um, their work their work best on Zoom these days. I think people are like top professional business at the top, um, pajamas and whatever at the bottom. Um, at this point, I think that we've all kind of unraveled a little. Um, and that's okay. I think it makes this more honest. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? So you mentioned you was from Columbus. So are we, are we a Buckeye fan or... Um, no, I, <laughs> I don't want anyone to fight me in the parking lot, um, but you know, I'm a spectator. So if a game is on, especially the OSU versus Michigan game, um, I'm definitely a Buckeye then. Um, I, I don't know. I was more of like an introverted, um, and Buckeye fans can be introverts too, but I don't know the, the idea of like this massive support and being beholden to this sports complex really freaked me out. Like the sports industrial complex. I, I actually didn't go to Ohio State um, oh. because, well, one, I didn't want to go to school with people I've known since kindergarten. <laughs> it just kind of felt weird. Even though Ohio State is a massive institution, Columbus in itself is a very small city uh, to me. Um, and so I thought, no, I want a different experience. And two, the areas that I wanted to study, I, I saw a huge disparity in terms of how much funding was going into the sports programs, mm. um, as opposed to my major <laughs> or my future major. And I thought, mm, yeah, um, love Ohio. Um, but this is not the move, especially if, um, you you see um, basketball and football players with like top tier iPads, iPhones, MacBooks, and then like you've got friends who are like um, film majors, which I I studied um, in Pittsburgh, so film, global policy, and cultural studies, and you've got these folks who are like. <laughs> living on ramen and hope <laughs> it just didn't just didn't feel right uh, so i just wanted to not be in that culture um, um so i played d1 football and i'm like oh yeah we did get a lot of free stuff but you know we're not gonna talk about that right now. <laughs> yeah we're not trying to rub people the wrong way but you you did say pittsburgh and i do know a little bit about pittsburgh because Part of um, a New York, Pennsylvania is right there. Then some of my games actually happen uh, right there in Heinz Stadium. So I'm, I'm familiar with that. And uh, honestly, now living in Seattle for about four years, it, it feels kind of like Seattle, Pittsburgh, and Seattle. It feels like a city that's just, that says they're progressive, but it's super saturated in whiteness. It's, it's filled with this performative action, this transactional relationship, rather than really being about it. Um, but, you know, of course, that's, that's based off of two hours, you know, every two months that I get to spend in Pittsburgh for a game. Um, and I would say, definitely say, that's a fact about Seattle. And I know you just moved here, so. Yeah, I, mean, right. uh, yeah, I haven't seen a lot of Seattle. 
Um, I would say, so I moved in July and I, I'm high risk because I have MS. Mm. And so I um, put on a little hazmat suit mm. and got on the plane with my uh, two suitcases and books and sold everything else. Um, but I, so I haven't seen most of the city. I live in the international district. And so I live in a very, uh, very privileged, posh, exciting space. Um, so I'm seeing um, the surface uh, presence of Seattle, or maybe even a tourist portion of Seattle, to be honest. Um, I'm not having, um, I haven't seen the warts yet. I have experienced some Seattle freeze, um, but not enough to like knock me down. I absolutely love interviewing people. Not only do I get to do what I do best, and that's talk for a living, but I get to really dive deep into people's thoughts, words, experiences, and oh my goodness, the, the wisdom that is about to be brought to us today, y'all. Today, uh, to, to y'all napcasters, I don't even know if that's a thing. That's what I'm calling y'all now. Um, but like every good podcast, you know, has has their listeners or calls their listeners something. So I'm gonna call y'all napcasters. Anyways, not terribly original or creative, and actually, it low key kind of reminds me of Napster. You know, remember that like online music streaming thing from like back in the day? I think that's how uh, I was watching the thing, and that's how Shaggy um, first got discovered in Hawaii. But anyways, that's a tangent. But we gonna rock and roll with it for right now. All right, y'all. So everyone knows that childcare is essential. We're some of the most influential people out there. Yet, we are often overworked and underpaid. So how can you work full time, have hobbies, show your friends and family love, self-care, and also fine tune your skills and grow more in depth? That's where we come in. These NAPCasts are designed to help you learn on the go. Hear another perspective spark debate <laughs> heck even agree with us but honestly remind you that you're not alone we live in a complex world so allow us to challenge your perspective so are your headphones in did you turn the volume up all right now good let's get it We are about to get some wisdom dropped on us by the homie right now. So homie, what up, what up, what up? <laughs> so thanks for the, the big intro. Uh, my name is Sierra Young, and I just moved to Seattle from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but I was born and raised in Columbus, Ohio. That's a very important distinction to make. Um, and I work at the Berchu School as the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Yeah, I'm a transplant out here too, you know, out west. Why did you end up leaving Pittsburgh? And what has it been like being in Seattle so far? It's only been, what, a handful of months? Um, so there were a lot of things working towards me getting out. So for me, um, being neurodivergent, being, and also having a mess and also being what people identify as plus size and also wearing my 4C hair, like as is, um, 
even no matter what I brought to the table, um, it was never, I didn't really find people willing to take me under their wing and like help me move up in the world because I was just, I couldn't be boxed in. And so one thing that I do appreciate about Seattle and I'm sure Seattle, and I know that Seattle has a lot of challenges. I, one, I like that I can drink the tap water. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not a reality in Pittsburgh Mm -hmm. and that I can breathe clean air, which is also not a reality in Pittsburgh. Um, And also as a transplant, um, I've noticed that there is this sense of kind of live and let live. And I don't know if it's because I'm new and sparkly and fresh, or if it's because I'm lighter complected, or if because um, the way that I code switch is palatable, or that like I choose to code switch in certain spaces, that um, my introduction to the city, even during the pandemic, hasn't been as barbed as um, other um, black and brown folks that I've come across. Um, and from my experience, it seems like there's more possibility here. Um, just in terms of just what I could be, how people see me, um, as opposed to in Pittsburgh, it, I kind of felt like it was a you can go far if you turn yourself into this. (laughs) We need you to check parts of yourself at the door um, if you want to play this game. Um, And here, there's definitely some presence of that, um, but not to the point where I feel like, ooh, my quality of life is going to tank, um, which I got that feeling in Pittsburgh quite a bit. And what about being here as a Black woman? There's sexism and racism in the workplace, especially in the educational field. And then you got to go into, say, the grocery store in this country and eyes are on you as a potential shoplifter or you engage in conversation. And you have to be concerned that what we call as passionate, people call aggressive or loud, you know, a real deficit outlook, uh, a racial narrative we too often put on our Black femme-identifying people. As a black woman, um, every every place in America will represent uh, a corner of hell or um, a place of intense um, discomfort and lack of safety. Um, and honestly, it's very unfortunate um, that in this country um, we have to think about not what space is free, but (laughs) what space can we deal with? (laughs) Um, And in Seattle, uh, I, what I have heard anecdotally and what I have seen and heard from folks, um, I can deal with (laughs) this corner of of hell as a black person. Um, Because at least here, like, I'm getting paid um, comparable to my work, which that was not happening in Pittsburgh. Um, I also am experiencing what is it like to be in a space where there are people of color in leadership, in real leadership. Um, 
I'm also, it's so nice to be able to pay for water and be able to drink it. Mm. <laughs> um, and I know that's not the case outside of Seattle proper. Like I know that there are some spaces where folks of color, especially indigenous folks of color are, are not having access to clean water in the state of Washington. Uh, I'm just thankful for the privilege that I have that I was able to move into a situation um, where, you know, yeah, there's some racism, uh, but geez, like the environment is so much better, which that's such a shame you have to play. Uh, you have to negotiate in terms of like, how are you going to suffer as a black person or just a person of color? Um, when you think about um, your experiences in this country and opportunities, um, it should never get to a point where someone thinks, I would, yes, I would love, I think that my lot in life will change for the better if I put on a hazmat suit and move um, across the country for a better life because I can't wait it out in this city for another month. And, ooh, I mean, it sounds drastic and like heart-wrenching and awful, but, um, and even my story, I think it's at the top of the ladder because it's very privileged. I'm a, I moved to become a director of diversity at an independent school. Um, I can't even imagine what folks who are, who are um, in, the, in the working class realm, black people in the working class realm have to go through and what they have to negotiate and grapple with um, when they have to make big choices about what is best for them and their families. Um, I think about folks uh, from the Mississippi Delta who have to like up in their lives because of um, environmental devastation from hurricanes or oil spills or um, migrant workers um, on the West Coast who have to leave because they're tired of choking on smoke <laughs> from wildfire season. Um, and, or even going way back, um, I know that for my ancestors, um, I, I identify as someone who is a descendant of slavery in the United States. Um, I trace my family back to Alabama and Mississippi. Um, and then for a while, some folks moved to Tennessee um, and then ended up migrating to Ohio and Michigan during the great migration. And so I think of like all of that, all of that strength and, and risk that they had to take um, to decide we're leaving this violent situation for another violent situation um, because life in the North, it was, it really was just slavery by another name and it still is. Um, but with a little bit more <laughs> sense of freedom and dignity, even though it wasn't a full sense of freedom and dignity. And I have nothing else to say about it. I'm just sick and tired that we don't get the opportunity to just move for the sake of having a life. Um, it, it always seems like it's connected to survival. Whereas 
I'm talking to some other folks in my age bracket <laughs> um, who uh, are white and they're like, I moved because I just want to take a risk and I just wanted to wow. live on the edge and, <laughs> and their experience of risk and like career move is I just dropped everything and I just moved across the country, but they had support from parents or they had a strong reference or, you know, they was going to be good because they had savings. And so all of these like things that aren't easily um, given um, to black folks and folks of color. So. And that Napcasters is literally what we mean by white supremacy and white privilege. <laughs> and, and I told y'all we was going to drop some knowledge on y'all today. Like, y'all, y'all thought I was joking, right? <laughs> well, let's take a seat, grab a drink, because we're about to get into this. <laughs> I feel like I, I went over the allotted time. <laughs> uh, don't worry about that, right? Speak the truth. Speak your truth. But I am going to segue us into our first question, because a lot of things that you were, you were saying you know, really, really connects and really vibes to what I what I'm hoping to 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 get out of today's conversation. So, just thinking about just just a, despite the increases in uh, numerical diversity, um, really a lot of these schools. Because when we when we talk to a lot of white people in leadership or a lot of white people or educators in general, when we say, oh, what do you want out of your anti-racism work? A lot of them jumps to, oh, I want to serve more black and brown kids, which is great. You know, increases in numerical diversity is great. But a lot of these schools and organizations and institutions still continue to lack the appropriate systems to support students of color, to support families of color, you know, particularly through faculty uh, professional development, the curriculum, school programming, the list goes on and on. And research uh, really stresses the importance of schools and organizations and community-based centers, stresses the importance that they engage in um, strategic planning for equity and inclusion, uh, along with just a continual monitoring and assessments to identify any gaps whatsoever between the organization's vision and its current reality and its direction. And yeah, we know all of that, but still a lot of these schools and independent schools are still tripping over themselves. So because you don't know what you don't know, you know, I say, let's, let's let you know. <laughs> what are, so Sierra, what are some of the things you've seen through your career that have been barriers to the growth of organizations around their anti-racism work? Well, one thing I would say is that I think that people do know. Mm. They do know and they are uncomfortable with grappling with the reality that they know. Mm. And because there is discomfort of acknowledging what they know, there is no um, sense of being compelled to act. And I don't say that in a punitive sense of like, oh, you know, you could do more and better. Um, oh, what a shame. Um, but I think that when initiatives are created as a reaction mm -hmm. um, and not um, as proactive in the fight against racism. Yes, and not as a form of care work, um, 
you really miss out on the why <laughs> of, of what you were doing. Uh, and then it becomes like putting out fires uh-huh. um, that you start. <laughs> exactly. Oh my goodness. <laughs> then it becomes like a game of whack-a-mole. Um, and you just spend your time um, putting band-aids. Uh, I love, so on Twitter, there's this um, photo that always pops up when people are talking about, when politicians are talking about systemic um, inequities mm-hmm. and they talk about their solutions and folks critique these solutions because they're so surface-based with this photo of someone putting a band-aid <laughs> like a crack on a sidewalk <laughs> and I've seen other variations of folks putting like a band-aid in the middle of a pothole <laughs> and going aha um, that yes we fixed it um, and sometimes I think that um, because folks are not thinking about the big picture and and why things got to the way that they are, um, you end up with these piecemeal solutions that, or in quote solutions Mm -hmm. that don't really lead to anything. I think um, it's people have to dig deep. um, And that means having really uncomfortable I don't want to say conversations because you are having conversations all the time. I think we need to figure out how to have those conversations more effectively, mm-hmm. um, which is why I think facilitation is so important. Um, just because you have a, a big heart and you're compassionate doesn't necessarily mean that um, you're equipped to facilitate. Absolutely. We need to move beyond like our word. We, we get it, right? You have, you're, you're committed to this work. You, you have a big heart, you support, you know, black and brown businesses, blah, 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 blah. But at some point, you're going to have to do more than just say things with your words. That won't dismantle racism. You're, you're, you know, you waking up on Saturday to go for a march is good. You know, don't get me wrong. I don't want to minimize that, but that's not the work. Right. And I think that we need less activism and more organizing. Mm-hmm. Um, with activism, you just show up, which is still so important because Absolutely. it pushes it pushes the Overton window uh, and Overton window at a at a link. Um, it's such a fascinating concept, um, and I think it uh, it really succinctly discusses how. Um, public opinions that were not in the norm of possibility are now becoming the norm because there are folks like activists who shift uh, the Overton window mm-hmm. and um, make make us, push us to think differently and to have a larger imagination around the way that we want to see our society. Um, so activism matters, but we also need folks um, who are willing to be in the trenches um, and do the research in terms of, well, what is it that we truly need? Um, Also, what are all the mechanisms of the problem? Um, We don't have a lot of folks thinking about systems. Um, We also need folks who are connectors. Um, And this is where I actually want um, white folks who want to be 
who want to be allies to be. Um, I, I, instead of you showing up to a march and then going home, I would rather you being have, I would rather you have those conversations um, with your white peers um, who are just starting their journeys of understanding racial identity or haven't started their journeys of understanding racial identity. I think it would be more important to have those people have allies have conversations with those people um, in order to bring them along as opposed to like deleting them off of Facebook <laughs> or not or not going um, to the family function because uh, aunt, auntie so-and-so said this thing about black people and you felt uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, no, you need to be in the ring with them because black people are always in the ring. Um, Muhammad Ali out here. <laughs> Seriously, I feel like we we are always learning how to do the dance of how do we um, how do we advance the needs of our communities? How do we um, think strategically? Um, also, when when it the inevitable happens of having to make concessions uh, and through negotiations and making deals. Um, what do we have to uh, concede for now um, mm. and push for later? Um, which no one wants to do. Um, and in this system, it happens to us. Um, I, I want more allies to think in those ways of like, if we were to <laughs> assess the war front, <laughs> or, oh, my, I'm using so many carceral and, and like, terms of violence. I apologize. Um, let me reframe that. Um, if we were to think about the puzzle or um, the big picture, um, if we were thinking about, um, no planting a garden or because we really need to be nourished we need to re-nourish ourselves as um, a nation um we need to bring some soul back to this place or there was never soul um it started with crime and murder and death um but we we need to bring some light to this um so if you think about um how would one create a garden or how would one i don't know make something beautiful um, you would have to, one, you would have to sketch it out, make a plan. Um, you have to think about why you want it and what are the benefits of doing it. You'd have to think about personally, what can you contribute to this? And if you, uh, know that there are certain things that you don't have, <laughs> what do you need to do to get it? Who do you need to bring in? Um, what kind of nutrients do you need to put in that soil? Um, what kind of plants do you want in it? Um, I, like, think beyond yourself. Mm. Um, think about all the pieces. Um, and that's the part that's missing, because I think sometimes when folks show up to marches, um, and specifically white folks, um, or when they put um, a Black Lives Matter sign on their car or their, their window or their business or whatever. Um, I think that it, it kind of creates this um, sort of like 
internal opting out or like this exemption from digging deeper Mm -hmm. uh, because Oh, I call that the the self-righteous phase, you know, yeah. and you know, I feel like at that stage we're we're in such a great danger of a falling victim to false pride and self-righteousness. You know, I really feel feel like we and I'm not white people, right? I don't know why I'm saying we white people <laughs> find themselves um, talking about other white people as they as with this judgmental as in. I'm better than you because I have this Black Lives Matter. I'm better than you. And I'm yeah. like, no, y'all are the same white people, right? Don't get confused. Don't just think because you put that in your window or you listen to gospel music or you voted for Kanye or you know what I mean? Or, or you dated a Black guy that you can't be complicit in racism. No. It becomes a, a, another um, notch to a weird meritocracy system. Mm-hmm. Like I earned my stripes. Well, yeah. I earned my black empowerment badge. Um, <laughs> so I don't have to do any more things or I read Robin D'Angelo. So I'm good. Um, and when people approach me with that rhetoric, I, I have to turn it upside down. And, and I, I think of, Uh, I I usually tell folks that this is because racism is a public health crisis. um, We need to do what we do in any public health crisis. Um, It depends who your administration is, but yeah, yeah, (laughs) of course. Um, We would um, one, we do our research. Um, Of course, we would work hard to find treatments um, uh, to repair the body um, Mm. and we would follow the recommended um, advice for our health. Um, And these aren't things that just go away in the night. Um, These are continuous things. So when we think about other things that we do to take care of our health, like brush our teeth, um, personal grooming, like washing up, um, eating uh, fruits and vegetables, taking multivitamins, like things that you do to make sure that your body's on the up and up. Um, you don't just stop doing those things. <laughs> and so I, I usually tell people that that's kind of, that's exactly what you, kind of, what you have to do um, when you are trying to dismantle racism and be an, an actionable anti-racist is that you have to keep engaging Um, Like you would never not take out your trash because you thought, oh, well, yeah, I, I took it out that one time Mm -hmm. during like the, the big um, trash takeout on Washington. I don't know. Like you can just like (laughs) stop doing things that are supposed to take care of you and the people around you. Um, And so I think people should begin to approach um, anti-racism work in that matter, like it's, it's for your health and the health of your community and those around you. Um, and that's the part that's missing. Like there's an empathy piece that's just not there yet. Um, we're not thinking about it as this is really going to make our country better because it's making, um, it's making, uh, and depending on how lovey-dovey you are, <laughs> because it's making my brothers and sisters better, um, or 
or it is um, improving the lives of people. It's, a, it's creating justice. Um, and I think that people are just doing it to check something off a box. And going back to your initial question about um, independent schools is I think that a lot of schools began to do DEI work um, to respond to fires or when a black family or family of color was hurt um, because of something that happened in the independent school space um, or to check off a box because this other school has a diversity <laughs> initiative. So we need to have one too. Um, it's very rare um, that spaces are doing it um, with the intention of creating a safe, inclusive, and caring community at the start. Um, and if you start um, doing uh, DEI and social justice work, um, thinking about you or your image or your reputation, um, it's it's very rare to get the end result uh, that is going to make um, marginalized groups in these spaces feel affirmed and whole and, and loved um, because that wasn't the initial start. That wasn't the, the primary reason for having these <laughs> initiatives. So I think that in order for these to be done well, um, there needs to be a lot of honesty about what is going on in the environment. Um, really also connecting with families too about what have your experiences been um, and where were we not good partners with your families? Um, what, what do you need to feel that this, that the school affirms you and your child exactly yep um and sometimes you're not going to receive answers that you like mm -mm. Uh, but that's expected and that's something that needs to happen um so i don't know um remove the arrogance um and the the pride um to really grow um because i think that if you don't um get to the truth of your institution um, it's really hard to, to turn a corner. Um, and I always think it's important to, the, to include um, the voices of the people that you say that you want to um, empower and protect um, and provide and, and, and ally with um, if you're not even being mindful of what their, their needs and wants and hopes and dreams are uh, in the process. Um, so I'm, I'm always leery of um, spaces that feels like over the summer everyone has a DEI program now <laughs> even even gushers <laughs> which is so good when I saw on Twitter gushers the candy has DEI initiatives now and I'm it, and in my mind I thought what motivated that did they talk to a black person <laughs> on their team um I don't know if they're I don't know, it just didn't evoke a sense of sincerity um, from a lot of folks that came out this summer because it, I don't know, it was just clear that they were just going through the motions uh, to meet a bottom line and um, not because they felt deeply um, as an organization that this is what they needed to do.
We'll be right back. Hilltop Children's Center is a high-quality preschool, after-school program, and Professional Development Institute of Early Learning and Inquiry, serving the Seattle community since 1971. Together, we are working with the next generation of inventors, leaders, thinkers, artists, and social activists. For more information on our professional development and community outreach, including workshops, presentations, blogs, coaching and consulting, and of course, this NAPCAST, please visit www.hilltopcc.org. You said earlier about feeding your soul and nourishing and even a little bit about mental health and wellness, mm-hmm. which got me thinking just about how our entire experience in education as BIPOCs has really centered around our, our colleagues, our educators, our, our fellow students, really, in their white comfort. Mm-hmm. And we often do that at the expense of our own mental health and wellness. And I sit here and, and I'm so upset because we all know this as BIPOCs. And, and oh, BIPOCs is Black Indigenous People of Color, in case anyone out there didn't know. And yet we continue to, to do this as, as communities of color, as individual voices of color. So my question to you is kind of three-pronged. It's, why do you think it's so hard for us as BIPOC educators and BIPOC people to break that cycle? And then how do you, how do we as, as BIPOC cater to whiteness and white comfort? Because that's not something that a lot of people might even know that we naturally do because um, just like people like to think about the proximity to blackness, our proximity to whiteness is, has been the reason why we have survived so long. You know, our ancestors, you said ancestors of slaves. We knew that the, the closer to whiteness we can get, the less we will be beaten, you know? Um, and then the last question I have is, how do white people weaponize it? against us in educational spaces? It's a very tough question because there's so many nuances as to how um, mm. it came to be. Um, it makes me think about, you know, and now I have to reread it, uh, but it makes me think about um, Kindred um, by Octavia Butler and how um, the protagonist um, travels back into time to see um, her ancestors. Um, and one is uh, a free Black woman, um, and the other um, is a slave owner um, who ends up um, raping and um, imprisoning um, her Black ancestor. Um, And at the end of um, the novel, um, she tries to, um, well, actually throughout the novel, one of the main goals that she is tasked with is keeping her ancestor, the slave owner, alive 
um, so that he could um, rape um, her black ancestor and lead to the to the lead to the main character being brought into the world. Um, and at the end of the novel, as she's escaping um, from this um, world that she's traveled to, she ends up losing a part of her arm because um, the slave owner um, is holding on to her arm as she's trying to leave um, the portal to go back to um, the to the modern world. Um, and I always wondered how, why she have to lose a piece of herself, um, to, in order to survive and return to the future. And it made me, and also why did she have to keep this slave owner alive? Um, and it just, and I, through some analysis that I've read, um, I think that Butler did this to share the painful, um, link, um, that, these black folks who are descendants of slavery have with white people in this nation um, and how it's, it's a painful, intricate relationship where we have had to brutally um, support each other's survival and support. I say that heavily. Um, where we were, we were forced to take care of white people. Mm. Um, but then in a way for our survival, we had to read their cues and um, do that, that atrocious manual labor mm -hmm. um, in order to see ourselves through. Um, and so it's this very violent relationship that we still haven't unpacked and i think that that manifests in a variety of ways that we relate to one another um and it's okay if you edit this part out because i'm like not everyone's read octavia butler um or kindred um but it was just something where when i think about um especially relationships between white women and black women i always think of kindred um yeah. octavia butler um because uh, and also um Butler spent a lot of time in Washington state um, and she's actually written um, a lot of her books here, um, especially the parable series. So it's, and that is, whew, it's dark, but necessary read um, because she, she saw the future clearly. Um, but moving on, <laughs> um, she, I, I think that our interactions are rooted um, in slavery um, especially when I think of early childhood and how I see a lot of black women. And I wish I had the statistics, um, but just through my experiences, just seeing a lot of black women are in early childhood. Hmm. And even in independent schools, it's also not surprising that when you do see um, black educators in the spaces, um, usually in like the pre-K or K wings. Mm -hmm. um, and they're taking care of predominantly white children. 
Um, and I know that that's not my choice or like, and I'm not, it's not like accusatory or like, I don't want it to lead to, I'm not trying to make a conclusion, but it's just a visual that through my experience in independent schools that I've noticed and just could, couldn't fully absorb it and take that all in, in terms of what that meant. Um, I've also, and I, I also think of, um, this is a very heavy question. Um, I also think of how we are groomed from the beginning um, to link our survival to being adjacent to whiteness and being able to know the codes and survive them. Mm. I, the earliest recollection that I have is of code switching is when I was talking to my Nana um, and I was talking in African-American vernacular English. And I think I was maybe like five or six. I was very young and we were on the phone and I'm just talking about how my week went and you, you know, talking about all the things I did and how excited I was. And she paused me and she was like, you have to learn not to speak that way. Mm-hmm. You have to learn how to speak proper English um, because you'll get labeled for it. And I don't want you to get labeled. And so at such a young age, I learned that it was only okay to talk as I would culturally talk Mm -hmm. um, in certain spaces. And I had to be very careful about how I presented myself to the outside world. Still happens happens and I think and we're always doing um, these um, cultural introductions or I don't know I don't know we're all we're always talking about passage um, to and from the the white world um, when we give the talk to black boys about um, police brutality and violence and what to do if they're in a car and they get stopped um, when we talk to young black women about hair and what they need to do in order to get a job um, and how they should wear their nails um, and how they should dress to conceal um, their body. Um, Also, if if folks who are black grew up in um, a church or spiritual background. There's a lot of social grooming happening there um, in terms of being respectable. And not solely for the Lord or the power that you worshiped, um, but because respectability politics curried favor. Um, I think, I know from, I remember my aunt even telling me once that, to um, really think critically about (laughs) the boys that I'm talking to and what I want out of my life because um, very upfront, I was told, yeah, you could get pregnant and and be a young mom and and get a degree, but 
it makes it much more difficult and people are going to look at you a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was very clear that some of the decisions <laughs> that I was allowed to make weren't really my own. Um, and that a lot of my destiny hinged on how well I understood white culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to understand white culture, I had to, I didn't have full autonomy over my body, um, my language, uh, my, my dreams even, um, and it just feels very stifling. Um, but then you're doing it so you're not sti- so you're not stifled further because another warning that I've always heard from family or uh, mentors um, was, you know, don't be like so and so who is in juvie. Um, don't be like so-and-so who dropped out. Um, when, when we think about what led to those situations, it's because there was a lack of resource and nurturing. There are a lack of opportunities. So if, my, if I have a cousin who's engaged in an alternative economy of like gang life or um, drug distribution, um, it, it, when I think of systems, it's because like as black men, um, they were not given the opportunities, um, to engage in the white collar economies. Um, and they needed to, and they wanted to find a way to, um, make a way for themselves and their families. And so chose an option that they felt was more accessible to them. Um, but, um, when we think about the narratives that go on, well, I know in my neighborhood, it was, Mm -hmm. they made the wrong choices because they didn't follow this great white way. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They didn't stay in school. They didn't speak proper English. They had a baby with someone. Um, and those aren't all the narratives of blackness. So I don't want anyone hearing this to think like, oh, this is like, this is mutually exclusive. Like this, no, is, like, this is the way that for centuries and for decades we have catered to whiteness in order to survive. Yes. And so I, I don't want anyone thinking that like, oh, this is like a monolithic experience. I'm just talking about what I experienced in East Columbus, Ohio, mm. um, as uh, the child of a deacon mm. um, and a mom from Akron, Ohio. My dad's from Cleveland, Ohio. And Bible Belt and like post-industrial region, true and true. Um, and that was with also a brother who had cerebral palsy. Um, and we lived on one income. So this is just my experience, true and true. Um, I, I don't know, just being... being in that type of lived experience, um, the stakes felt really high. Um, there was of course a lot of love and affirmation and a lot of empowerment and a lot of cultural affirmation. And there was also this sense of urgency that if you don't follow these rules then you'll get sucked under. 
Mm. whatever that meant. Like you won't get the dream, um, whatever that is, unless you pull yourself up and out. Um, so I was uh, always pushed to and to go up and out, which means I had to sacrifice a part of my um, sense of belonging in a community. Um, so I, I was the one, um, because I had to make it, um, catapulted out of my neighborhood to go to predominantly white schools um, to take AP classes, you know, getting bussed across town and you know, waking up at five um, wow. just to make sure that I could make it. Um, I, and that's a, that's a lot for someone who's five, you know, someone who's six, seven, that's a lot of burden to shoulder to, to change the trajectory of your family, because it's not just for you, it's for your family, for your community. Right. And there is definitely a sense of loss and a sense of loss that we just don't have time to process. I mean, of course I'm, I'm proud of the achievements that we have been able to do. And I'm a, I'm proud of the achievements I've been able to do as a first generation grad. Um, Having a net worth that is more than $5 um, being able to support my family and I'm proud that I'm able to do those things. Um, I just lament the cost at which it happened. Yeah. Um, and that the way that I had to go and others before me and also others following me because I have cousins going through it now that there is this like sense of limited freedom and what we can do and say and and B, um, I have family members interested in the arts, <laughs> but because of where we are, um, we're still being told that you know, be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, because we need that money. Right. <laughs> and I was actually reading a study like a while back, stating that um, some prominent musicians of color um, or vocalists of color. Um, or folks who are just marginalized, coming from marginalized origins, that they are like a third generation or, or more um, in their family because their families had to wait a minute um, before there was enough um, economic capital within their family units to feel comfortable to support a child who was interested in the arts. Um, so three generations of people like not being able to fully realize their gifts um, or um, their hopes because they've got to turn over this cycle. And it's, it's painful knowing that, um, not everyone goes through that struggle um, in this country. Um, and I know, like, I'm going to bring it back because it's clear that this is a tangent. Um, in a way, it's not. Like, it's all connected. Um, but in terms of thinking about how um, we are 
in a sense, um, confined by this, by people pushing us to be adjacent to whiteness and also how that's exploited. Um, I, I think that being adjacent to whiteness is so damaging. Mm. I, I, I will never have enough time and space and words to comprehend how it is, how it is so harmful. Um, and I think that we as, as a community um, need to, I want us to reimagine, not reimagine, I hate when people say that, because abolish your damn system. Yes. I I think that I want us to have more I want us to have conversations about the ideas of what we can be and do. Because I do think that we can exist in spaces and um make ourselves whole and survive um, without having to um, tread on this barbed mm -hmm. thin line. Um, and, I, and it's hard to have that discussion um, when um, we don't even have the space to think about what that could look like. Um, and I think that we, I hope that there is a space where we can think about what does it look like um, to be post-white adjacent? <laughs> what does it look like to be beyond that? Um, because I think that that is, that is so liberating. Um, we just have to get there. And I think we just need to continue the work of our ancestors um, who also had this strong wealth of imagination to think about um, even when they were in um, the belly of the ship, even as they were running in the dark, even as they packed up all of their things in Mississippi and Alabama and Texas and Tennessee to go to the north, they had hopes and visions and dreams for us. And I want us to continue that and think about what else is possible for us. And... I would want to end there, but I want to answer your question about how do um, white folks um, exploit um, mm -hmm. us needing to be white adjacent. And I think that that comes from asking us to do work that they should be doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I am, you know, I signed up to be um, a DEI practitioner and most of the black folks that do this work sign up to do it. Um, however, our work works as well as the community. <laughs> so if the community is not doing the work, then all of our effort is for not. Um, and, and so you, it, it feels like a Sisyphean task. So that, um, Greek narrative of the man, like pushing a boulder up the hill only for it to, or the mountain rather, only for it to come right back down. Mm -hmm. Um, we will engage in that sort of um, physical toil 
um, if we're in spaces where um, folks know that we're committed to this work, um, but don't want to do any of the work with us. Um, and I think that that is, that's the key way in which that adjacence to whiteness is exploited. Um, and also too, um, I think again, going back to this need to like refill our, like our coffers for imagination, um, I think that in addition to white supremacy existing in all of our workspaces, um, it's linked, it's, it, it's, it's braided up with capitalism too. And so you have these vicious and violent um, racist acts happening in addition to this capitalist system, um, which exacerbates the racism and it also creates um, chaos and violence internally in our communities. Mm -hmm. And so in addition to us taking our own personal burdens, uh, we are infighting with someone we should be collaborating with. And so whether that is folks, and it comes up in so many forms, um, whether that is you feeling like you can't bring this other person in, this black person in, because you, you gotta hold it down, um, or you not helping um, the black person um, who, who is doing the same work as you because you want to be the first and only because there's a lot of prestige and, and benefits that come from that, which is so sad. I, I don't know. Like, I know it's, it's important to celebrate our firsts, um, but it's so lonely and it's so disappointing. Um, I, I want us to celebrate when we're free, <laughs> not when we're the first. <laughs> Um, because I, it, that's another conversation for another time. Um, but I, and I also think it comes up when, um, we have folks from different experiences that are black, that are pitted against each other as like, oh, this person is more friendlier, more approachable, mm -hmm. or, oh, I wish you could be like so-and-so because, they work really well with people when in reality, maybe this person just has a different style of code switching or a different way they see themselves in the working world. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean that like one employee is, I, it, it gets really dangerous um, in a working space um, when um, black folks and, and folks of color are um, ranked and pitted against each other. Mm -hmm. um, and it has become like crabs in a barrel um, when in reality um, we're, we're fighting over peanuts and crumbs. We're not even at the table. We're in the pot. Exactly. <laughs> and um, I think, and I don't blame us for that. I blame the system um, for making it seem as if this is the only way that we can survive. We'll be right back. Interested in being a guest on our show? Do you have a cool and interesting perspective to share? Hey, we're looking for you. From child psychologists to doulas, 
therapists and coaches, counselors, and of course, male educators and educators of color to come join us on our show. Reach out for NAPCAST, trainings, conversations, and more by emailing me, hey, my name is Mike, at institute at hilltopcc.org. Was it me? Or did you get chills when she said, every place in America will represent a corner of hell for a black woman? I'm like, I'm looking at my the, the bleach I got on my <laughs> pants right now. And I'm like, yo, let that, let that soak in for everyone out there. Is there a place? Is there a place in the United States that could be considered safe for Black femme-identifying women? Like, period. Full stop. And I lead off with Black femme-identifying women because like the title of this NAPCAST, we need to be intentional in centering their experiences in their wisdom. Black femme-identifying individuals often get left as an afterthought when we talk about racial justice. I ain't never seen a photo in history where a sister wasn't at the front lines getting hit, spit, pushed, shoved, hosed down, arrested, degraded, or, or having to bury their child or being put in the coffin themselves. But I guess that's America. Every place in America will represent a corner of hell for a Black woman. We recorded part of that episode in December 2020 and in January 2021. And now as I sit here offering my reflections with my TV on in the background, seeing the videos of the insurrection on the Capitol, Videos that remind me that every place in America does represent a corner of hell for Black women. Because if mobs and white supremacists can try to topple the people's house in our nation's capital, one of the safest places out there, then what place in America is safe for me? There's no escaping hell if you're not a white passing person in America. Sorry, not just America, right? The United States of America. It's hot as hell in the supermarket for us. It's disco inferno when we peacefully march. It's what? La, la, uh, La Diabla is there when we are 14 years old and we're walking out of a New York hotel minding our own damn business. And ECE and the educational system is no different. Sierra says something else. It's, and I quote, it's not what space is free, but what space can we deal with? 
end quote. Mm. In the land of the free, we are forced to consider what spaces can I be in that doesn't send us to our graves faster than society does. And when she said that, and I, and I thought, well, how does that play out in ECE settings or our work at home, in our classrooms, in our learning environments? And it brought me straight to how we even consider and describe our pedagogy. I'm play-based, you're project-based. I'm theme-based, you're hands-on. And the list goes on and on. But does any of those get to the essence of what we should be about? And that's liberation, the pedagogy of liberation, a pedagogy that forces us to rethink how we can undo oppressive structures. Shout out to Sister Dr. Raydell, Director of Network for Edward, for introducing me to that thought. A pedagogy in which, and I quote straight from her herself, it's not just a bunch of tools. It's about understanding. It's about you understanding, excuse me. It's about you understanding the importance of valuing students' cultures and communities. And then you, I don't know if she emphasized you, but I am, right? And then you finding meaningful ways to connect that to your student in your classroom, end quote. In our last NAPCAST, Three Males in an Insurrection, Nick, Amir, and I, Mike, described education as a matter of politics. It's impossible to be neutral. You either teach about the truth or you don't. You either teach about racism and the other systems of oppressions or you don't. And I think part of that is because Liberation is not on the forefront of our minds. Education, the way that at least it is currently constructed within the United States, it's around this power imbalance. The power is held in one person's hand, usually the educator, and the other group, the children, are fighting for that freedom of expression, for that voice, for that agency with our children of color usually left in the back of that fight. And our systems are like that too. The power is typically held in white femme identifying hands and the rest of us are left pitted against one another, fighting against one another just to be heard. How can we have a focus on liberating children, working towards the humanization of them with the emphasis on our children of color and all their strengths as opposed to focusing on kindergarten readiness? How can we then reflect that back on our work, liberating each other? How can we in this rapidly changing environment and world share our experiences, thoughts, feelings about our lived reality without the shame, blame, deflection, or retaliation so that we can all understand the forces which controls our white supremacist world. 
Institutionalizing our anti-racism work is a personal journey, y'all. It is self-responsibility, accountability, trust, liberation from the, the arbitrary limits. Like what constitutes professional dress? It is humility, it is teamwork, it is community. And most importantly, it is love. Love that isn't reactionary because you read the statistics that Black women in the United States make up more than 25% of the women sentenced to death, almost double their population size than their white counterparts. It isn't being reactionary to that and you thinking, oh, I can get an Instagram like or seen as a good person by posting this. It's love because you, and I'm about to channel my inner Colonel West. Nick, I hope you're proud. It's because you are a decent person being filled with integrity, honesty, decency, and want to serve others. See, I'm a straight heterosexual male, but I want to show up for my gay, lesbian, trans brothers, sisters, and two spirits because my love for their existence, for their ability to thrive is unconditional. Not just love when it's convenient to me, not just love when I get some sort of transactional thing out of it, love because my whole body feels it. And institutionalizing our anti-racism work with love is just that. It's about digging deep. It's about combining your activism with some organizing to ensure that you and your community understands the vision of success, the multiple layers of inequities, and how they can shoulder some of those responsibilities off of voices of color that often have to drive this work forward. Institutionalizing our anti-racism work it's about staying in the ring, as Sierra so eloquently put it. It's about ducking and weaving, throwing your punches, floating like a butterfly and stinging like one of those murderous hornet bees. So what do we need in order to get ready for this fight? Well, Layla Ali, arguably the greatest boxer ever, who also so happens to be a black woman, educated herself about her opponent. So education is key. But I mean, is that really any surprise you hearing that coming from me? It would be pretty silly if I didn't say anything about education since, you know, that's the field we're in. But educating ourselves and revealing, revealing how uh, the historical feeds into the present day. Understanding how the laws of the past affects the, pro affects the policies that are still being carried out today. Revealing the ways it all supports white supremacy. From the cultural rules and, and norms that creates anti-Blackness to the covert, to the unconscious, and to the automatic ways in which racism shows up. Layla was also super intentional in her training as well. You know, so, you know, that, that one training or that book you sort of kind of read three years ago ain't really going to cut it. You need to be intentional in every move you make 
understanding how it can disrupt the system and the cycle of oppression and instill those same things in your children as well. Being intentional by introducing children to black and brown professionals. You have a career day coming up, right? Oh, that's dope. Okay, bring in a black doctor. Oh, it's time to get your child's teeth clean? How about driving that extra 10 minutes and head to that brown dentist rather than the white one you've been seeing since you were a kid? Do you play an audiobook before nap time? Well, why don't you try putting on a folktale from Guam? Yesterday when I was with the kids and we wanted, and they wanted to do a dance party, right? I decided to put on music from my country as opposed to playing the soundtrack of Frozen. And they had no idea what soca music was. And what happened after that? That led to a week-long conversation about the instruments they heard, the wardrobe they wore. I had, to, I had the opportunity to explain what Carnival in the Caribbean was. One child was like, oh, is that near the Bermuda Triangle? And I got to talk about that as well. So being intentional in the introduction of different cultures will support you in your pursuit of being an anti-racist. And to be in this ring means you also need to be courageous. And I know a lot of the talk is about how to have courageous conversations with others. But I'm going to ask you to be real with yourself, to turn those techniques inward. To have the courage to acknowledge that you might not have the answers. And then having the courage to go seek them out. Have the courage to fight that feeling of centering yourself and your feelings. I was in a training the other day about finding joy in your work as educators that was being led by a black woman. And a white lady started talking about her joy and photos of her families. No! Stop it! And when I call you out for it, have the courage to not deflect, to reject, to tear up when I say or someone else says something and that triggers a deep defensive response in you. Have the courage to figure out what that defense mechanism is for you. Have the courage to not hate me because I love you enough to call you out. Have the courage to actually dig deeper and reflect and question and work to understand what messages have I received in my social, political, economic, and cultural life, right? Because all of these systems are interconnected. That makes me think, feel, and respond in certain ways. Have the courage to actively work to dismantle those stereotypes, prejudice, and attitudes as opposed to working to say the politically correct thing. Y'all gonna make me go to church today, I swear. <laughs> you know, it, it reminds me of what they, uh, what they taught us in vacation Bible school like 10, 15, 20 years ago, right? Hate the sin, not the sinner. 
hate the sin, not the sinner. So hate white supremacy, but still love the individual. Why haven't black people created our own version of the Ku Klux Klan? Well, there you go right there. Because love is where we are coming out of. Robert Fredrickson, Director of Positive Emotions in Psychophysiology Laboratory at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, puts it this way. Love, and I quote, draws you out of your cocoon of self-absorption to attune to others. Love allows you to really see another person holistically with care, concern, and compassion, end quote. Accepting love empowers us to do this work. And let me tell you, anti-racism work will be the hardest mental work that you will ever have to undergo in this physical life form. Institutionalizing our anti-racism work, yo, it's also about sustaining this work. A lot, and I mean a lot of institutions, schools, organizations have begun to do their anti-racism work or their racial equity work or their DEI work, which are not the same and should not be used interchangeably or used in general if you can't even define it. But then you can hire me and then I can come and be a consultant. But that's a tangent for another time. But institutions have begun to do this work because of this new awareness we all have. And you see the results. We are seeing some symbolic changes happening. Recently, UNLV mascot was decided to be retired. So has Valpo University, their mascot, and the Aunt Jemima brand, right? Boom, gone. This new awareness. And while we're extinguishing these racist symbols, we also, we're, it's, it's important to remember that we're also still leaving these racist systems intact. And after this moment passed, after the new cycles uh, uh, moves on to future stories, remind yourself, where and how are you sustaining this work in the aftermath of all of that? How can we and I Continue to reassess and restructure with the goal of liberation, of transformation. Anti-racism work is most definitely a lifelong marathon of commitment. It's a journey, not a destination. It's like a long walk in the park. It is not a sprint. It's about showing up every day, even when you're tired. Shit, I've been tired since 1991. Sustaining this movement is about living and working in a deliberate anti-racist way beyond the heat of the moment. It can look like teaching about Black lives. Yes, even when it's not Black History Month. Oh. Maybe you got to even start smaller. Maybe you even just have to start, I don't know, acknowledging it. It can look like understanding which Community organizations contribute to the economic liberation and wealth building of BIPOCs in supporting them. 
to my publisher friends, my university professors, my, you know, book clubbers, professional development people. It can be reflecting on the trends of who gets published. The people you lean on for referrals and supports. Who have historically been asked to speak on panels? Who you are currently asking to speak at your conferences? Which books are taught and which scholarships are being honored? And more. Sustaining this work doesn't happen in a vacuum of your environment. It extends into understanding how racism lives in our communities. You know, thinking about the Seattle context, my mind goes to Dr. Ben Danielson, who served as medical director of Seattle Children's Hospital. And he recently resigned after seeing one of the most prestigious medical institutions in the nation that he had tenure at. Man, that is a lot of money right there, right? He saw this organization continue to exploit black and brown families as fundraising tools while refusing to make meaningful investments in their well-being. How many of us are doing the same? How many of us are then being like Dr. Danielson who took a stand, who walked away. Where are we marrying, uh, not marrying, right? <laughs> Where are we marrowing, right? That's a hard word. Uh, this level of accountability in our lives. Where can we believe and support Dr. Danielson in his pursuits for healthcare equity? I'd even kick it back a couple years ago, in 2017, according to a re uh, according to that report in the Seattle Times, where 48% of the youth charged in King County adult court were black. And until recently in that year, a lot of them were housed at the adult jail in Kent, where they were kept and long-term solitary confinement, and they were denied educational services. Youth of color are still being disproportionately being tried as adults four years later. Not just in Seattle, we're talking about across the country. So where can we organize? Where can we use our power? Where can we use our voice and influence to hold these failed systems accountable? Anti-Asian racism has skyrocketed. Where can we protect our Asian neighbors this Lunar New Year season and beyond? See, creality and racism underpins all of these systems. When the social media post dies down, where and how would you continue to keep this movement alive? So I'll leave you with this. I, Sierra, and other BIPOCs 
We don't have the emotional or psychological capacity to keep providing white people with the knowledge, skills, and tools to continue this work. What does a sustained commitment to anti-racism look like for you? What or who is going to support you in honoring that commitment? In the words of Adana, an amazing consultant, advocate, scholar, and mother living here in the greater Seattle region, accountability is part of belonging with and to each other. It is part of care and an essential component to being in relationship. True accountability to community is an ongoing practice, not a singular transaction, end quote. How will you meet this moment? How will you sustain this moment? How will you engage in anti-racism practice? What are you willing to give up in the struggle for racial justice? Where can you elevate your anti-racist practice and move towards anti-racist healing? Because anti-racism work is transformative. And it's time for all of us to transform.